She may not have an opinion because she's been doing more important things. I feel like that's generally what our show. <laughs> yeah, it's like we shouldn't have these opinions because we've been doing more important things. But here we are. You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. It's episode 344 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, today joined by Seth Miller and uh, special guest Caroline Lupini, a digital nomad. Hey, Caroline. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We, we want to talk about one main subject uh, that's, I think, near and dear to your heart and something that you just recent, recently accomplished. Uh, it's Fly 49 States. Can you tell us just a little bit about it and uh, why you chose to pursue this? Yeah. So um, normally I spend a lot of time traveling outside of the U.S., but over the past year and a half with the pandemic, that hasn't looked quite as uh, as it usually does for me and for most of us, I imagine. Um, so I was talking to one of my friends one day who's a flight instructor, and I've always wanted to get my pilot's license. And he kind of just threw out this idea to me just kind of as a, a little like challenge uh, that was look at all... Um, you know, the countries in the world and try to plan a route that would theoretically be possible to fly an electric aircraft someday. Um, so like we were looking at, you know, 100 to 200 mile leg maximum and just see what we could make happen. And that slowly morphed into, well, what about flying to all of the U.S. states? And since I've always wanted to get my pilot's license, what if we do my training while we're flying to all of the states? And uh, Hawaii got eliminated because it's a little bit hard to get there in a Cessna 172. The range isn't quite what we needed it to be, but we optimized the route. You just like the... hang a couple dozen <laughs> fuel tanks off the wings, it'd be fine. Yeah, which, well, people do that. People like put fuel in the whole cabin area, essentially, and remove all of the seats and all of the extra weight. And it's super dangerous because the uh, the center of gravity and weight, the weight imbalance is just not what it's supposed to be for that type of aircraft. And people die all the time trying to do that while they're ferrying flights to uh, planes to Hawaii and I think even to um, Asia. So we did not do that. Didn't seem like a great idea. Um, I don't know if it would have even been possible to have a second person in there, but 49 contiguous United States, um, or sorry, 49 continental United States was possible. Um, We did have to land in Canada in order to make Alaska happen, but we optimized a route to be the fastest way to travel through all of the states landing in each one. Um, And we attempted to and succeeded in breaking the current world record, which was about um, 16 and a half days for the lower 48 states. There isn't an official record for the 49 states. So, and that record is you land, you don't have to spend any time. It's basically the whole, tr- doing the whole trip, right? To all 40, 48 right. states. And, yeah. 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 We just had to land in each state. And, uh, we, we were able to complete the whole, the trip from Montana, which is where we started the lower 48 all the way to Maine in just short of 12 days. And then Alaska was two extra days, but again, not part of the official record. And we actually completed two landings in each state so that he could have one landing and I could have one landing, even though that wasn't a requirement by any stretch. Oh, that's cool. Was was it like a touch and go and then you looped around and went back in again or like stopped and did something? Pretty much. Usually one was a touch and go and then one was a full stop and we refueled in a lot of states. And um, sometimes we would do the touch and go on the way in and sometimes we would do it on the way out. And sometimes we knew we were going to have to stop again in the same state. So we would just do a touch and go and then go on and do a full stop at the next airport. It just depended a little bit on the situation. 
And I mean, I have, I have a few comments on this. Uh, I think I, I'm disappointed that I don't, I didn't hear you, uh, you know, traverse Newark, JFK and, and LaGuardia as part of this as well. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, a little, uh, little too late in the in the uh, pandemic, I guess. Yes. Yes. Traffic is back too far, too far back. So w- what was the, was the reason to, um, break a record or was the reason to get your pilot's license or was there a tertiary reason or was this just something fun to do because it's pandemic and you can work from wherever and this is what you wanted to do? A bit of all of the above. Definitely getting my pilot's license or completing a lot of the training and requirements in order to eventually get my pilot's license was a primary goal. It's something I've wanted to do since I did a discovery flight back in 2009 as a Christmas gift from one of my friends. Um, but, you know, in college, I didn't have a lot of money or really free time. And then after I started traveling a lot, and so I just wasn't in the States enough. Um, we also wanted to promote um, women in aviation because not that many pilots are women. It's depending on which category of pilot you're looking at, it's anywhere between about five and seven percent. Um, and that's like an incredibly low number. We always talk about all of these other fields where there aren't very many women like engineering and, um, you know, computer science and all, all of these other fields where we don't see that many women, but it's, it's not anywhere close to the same level as in aviation. And, uh, you know, I don't really know. I don't really know why that is. And also we see a, there's a huge fall off in the number of women who are student pilots who then mm-hmm. go on to actually get their um, private pilot certificate. If I remember correctly, I think about 13% of student pilots are women, which is still a really low number, but it's a, a lot more than, you know, 6%. Um, and then also, you know, we figured while we were researching it, this project, we came across these records that have been set. And so we were like, oh, we could, uh, like, that would be fun if we can also break the record. But that was really, like, not not one of the initial goals. And honestly, the way Guinness handles their whole record system is kind of shenanigans, as we found <laughs> out throughout the process. Um, you have to submit an application to Guinness before they'll even tell you what evidence they require. And it takes them up to three months to respond with the list of evidence that they require. And we didn't know we were doing this three months ahead of time. So we were just like, okay, well, we'll submit the application and we'll just collect what we think they'll require. And uh-huh. maybe they'll accept our record attempt. Um, but we did just literally last week get a response from Guinness about what they required. And we didn't quite do the things that they they wanted, but we might be able to kind of pull together something that will work. However, one of the requirements is actually that the pilots have a private pilot certificate. So that alone may disqualify me from officially holding the Guinness uh-huh. World Record for this, even though it wouldn't disqualify my CFI. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's like because you don't have – like that's I such a technicality. It is a technicality, but on this, at the same time, like you, you can't be Guinness and be accused of trying to, you know, induce someone to break the law by breaking this rule even though they can't legally fly on their own. Yeah, that's I can, true. I can almost understand where they're coming from there. There's a, lawyers got involved, obviously. Yeah. So but that still sucks. <laughs> we're still going to submit everything and see what happens. But even if the record isn't officially recognized by them, it, do- it doesn't really matter because we know that we did it and we have all of the proof. We took photos with airport signs and the geolocations and I have my like swarm check-ins everywhere. And I use this app to track my travel that pings the GPS satellites and puts a point on a map every like 10 minutes. And so we have lots of evidence that we actually completed this and we know that we did. So if Guinness doesn't 
uh, yeah. officially yeah. recognize it. It doesn't matter. And Did- plus, it was just fun, especially after a whole year of, you know, year plus of not really traveling, being able to do something really unique. And I had never been to Alaska. So that was the first state that we went to as part of this trip. And that was just like the most ridiculously beautiful part of the whole trip. It was such an incredible experience to fly at low altitudes over like the, near the inside passage all the way up to Ketchikan. It was just ridiculous. It made, it, re- it reminded me why I love traveling so much. Did you what what time did you do the Alaska trip? Like what part of the year? Like what time of the year? So we we rented the plane out of San Diego, I believe at the beginning of May, and we headed up to Northern California where we just hung out for about two and a half weeks and we because we had to wait for a weather window mm. to be able to do this. We did the um the whole record part of the attempt um VFR and in the spring, the Alaska weather isn't exactly great yet. So we, we actually really lucked out because we were waiting for a good weather window for about a week and a half by the time we actually left. And we, we got a two day weather window where we, we flew up to Alaska one day and we flew back the next day. And if we had stayed longer in Alaska, we would have been stuck there for at least a week because the weather window just completely shut down. Hmm. So we got super lucky. Yeah, that's what I was wondering because, I mean, I'm thinking Ketchikan and Juneau. I mean, even some of the commercial airliners have trouble at those spots mm-hmm. during the spring. So, um, And you said you landed in Canada. Did you have to deal with COVID or anything like that? Like yes. checks or anything? Yes, it was It was a mess. Um, we, we had to land in both directions for fuel. And it was one of those things where we tried to do as much research ahead of time. And we thought we had all of the information that we needed. Um, and then when we got on the phone the day of to get the approval for the flight, all of the information we got from every person we talked to was different, not only than the information that we had researched online, but also than the information that every other person had given to us on the phone that day. <laughs> so we, fi- I think we finally, Chauncey did all of the talking on the phone since he, as a student pilot, I'm not allowed really to fly in Canada. Like he had to be the pilot in command on, on those flights. Um, so he, and he knows a lot more than I do, <laughs> especially at that point, because that was really only about three weeks into my training. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think we finally just kind of reached a point where we were like, okay, well, we think this is probably going to work. We're just going to go. And worst case scenario, like we're going to get in a little bit of trouble when we land. But when we, <laughs> or shoved into a hotel room and like, you never know, maybe you don't get to leave for two weeks, but hey, that's yeah. just a little trouble, right? Yeah. Um, so when we, I mean, I mean, really, like, even originally what they told us on the phone was that we weren't allowed to get out of the aircraft at all. We could not get out of the aircraft to go to the bathroom. We could only land places where somebody could fuel for us. And we both had to stay in the aircraft at all times. Then eventually we were told actually only one person is allowed to get out of the aircraft to do the fueling. The other person must stay in the aircraft at all times. Again, no bathroom breaks even, which was going to be very interesting. <laughs> and... Then when we actually got to Canada, the first thing they told us was, okay, like, get out of the aircraft and meet the two customs agents who are going to come come meet you by the plane. And we had to fill out some Canada form of, you know, we haven't been exposed to COVID and don't have COVID. Um, we didn't, COVID tests were not required. Um, and as after we talked to them, they were like, okay, you're good to go land wherever you need to land to get fuel and, you know, have a good trip. 
But then... So, like, so, so, sorry, so after you cleared the first entry point that you were allowed to sort of go anywhere else in Canada you needed to on the way through? Right. So, and we were, we're only okay. supposed to land for, for fuel. And okay, so it was, it was explicitly a transit experience. Right, yes. Okay. Exactly. And then the next day, when we had to fly back through Canada to come back to the United States, we had to go through this whole shenanigans again, where we couldn't get the same answer from anybody. And no, and even from the day prior, they were like, we don't know how you did that yesterday, because actually, you do need a COVID test. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> and there were only I mean, this reminds me of when I, I transited that are allowed once. To- <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was I was just going to say there were only certain airports that could be used as entry airports, which is typical. But because of COVID, that number of airports was is reduced right now. So on on the way back through, we wanted to land at Prince Rupert. That was like the really the only airport within comfortable range of our aircraft that could be used as an entry airport. And they didn't have fuel there. But the only way an airport was allowed because of COVID to be used as an entry airport is for a technical stop. So for fuel. But because that airport didn't have fuel, we actually had to buy a five gallon gas can, fill it with fuel in Alaska, and then bring it with us to Canada and use it to put five gallons in our fuel tank when we landed in Prince Rupert so that the stop would count as a technical stop. It's like the most bizarre workaround, I think, I've heard. (laughs) And there, the customs agent actually didn't even meet us. He... We were given a phone number to call when we landed, so we called, and he was like, okay, here's your, like, temporary authorization number. Send me a picture of your, like, form that you filled out and where you're planning to land, and I'll send, I'll text you later today with your permanent authorization number, and have a good trip. So we never even met a person there. So you just landed, put the five gallons in, got back in, and took off? Yes. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) The transit thing reminds me a little bit of, I had a transit in Europe once where... I went in through Italy and out through Zurich, and the Italians didn't stamp me in. And so the officers in Zurich were, like, flipping through my passport three times, and it had a lot of pa- – I had extra pages, and I'm like, are you looking for the entry stamp? And the guy said, yes. And I was like, there isn't one. I came in through Rome. And he's like, oh, the Italians. And he tossed my passport back. He didn't stamp <laughs> me out, because at that point, he didn't want to get involved in this little shenanigans, right? But, like, the different rules and the different, like, you never know what you're going to get thing, it feels like very shrug your shoulders and hope for the best, eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, I- which is – I think it's super surprising during COVID, though, like that the rules are that variable. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's it's probably just because they're they're not really dealing with that many people doing that. Like how how many people have flown, you know, a small aircraft between the U.S. and Alaska over the past 18 months? Like how, you know, how how often are are they even having to answer those questions? And assuming it's not very often, it's kind of no wonder that they don't really have a good protocol in place for what's supposed to happen. Yeah, like most of the bush pilots are up there being bush pilots, right? They're not going up to Canada or to Alaska mm-hmm. to be bush pilots, right? So, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's wild. Um, so then tell me a little bit about the planning for the lower 48 because, right, if you VFR, so it's visual flight rules for our listeners who may not be up to speed. So this means you can't be in clouds. You know, there's, there's different rules around what's VFR and what's IFR. Um, and so you're having to plan around weather and mm-hmm. winds. And so what, what went into that? Like how much planning went into each, like into the whole trip, I guess. And then at each stop, were you guys having to kind of tweak things to, uh, better plan the route or, you know, sometimes improvise? 
So in terms of the pre-trip planning, we kind of, there's, there's that article that was written years ago about the most optimized route to drive through all of the states. Mm-hmm. So we kind of use that as our, our baseline route and then tried to just choose airports that were at the edges and corners of states and optimize along, you know, the straight lines so we're not flying out of the way unnecessarily. And we just kind of pl- played around with the route for about probably four weeks before the trip and just, you know, could we shave off a few miles there, a few miles there. But we finally got to the point where we were like, you know, at this point, this these few miles aren't, aren't going to be what makes the difference um, on, on our trip. And then... We So our trip, the 48 states started in Montana, and then it came back west a bit and kind of down down south um, to New Mexico, and then up to North Dakota, and then back down south to Florida, and then back up to Maine. Wow. But we just, again, caught the edges of states. Like, we weren't trying to hit any major cities. We were actually, we, we landed at very few tower-controlled airports for the whole trip just because we wanted to keep it as fast as possible. And then I looked, I also had a whole document of, you know, in each, at each airport, what's the nearest hotel, what's the nearest food so that we could try to also optimize where should we stop tonight to sleep and where, you know, where will we have access to to food? And so that's kind of what happened up until we got to Colorado. We had really good weather. Um, We, we left midday from Montana and we stayed one night in California and then we stayed one night in Southern Colorado and then we made it to Colorado Springs, which is where we had planned to have some maintenance done on our aircraft because it was ready for an oil change. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, during the oil change, the mechanic discovered a bunch of metal shavings in the oil filter, which... Uh-oh. Yeah, is not not what's supposed to happen. And so we followed the manufacturer's recommendations and flew the plane for two hours. We flew an hour up north to stay with some friends of mine and then back to Colorado Springs. They cut a, a, cut open the oil filter again to see if that was just a you know one-time fluke, like something weird had happened and there was some metal or if it was some bigger issue. And there was, just from two hours of flying, quite a bit of metal in the oil filter. So... <laughs> We had to get a hold of the owner of the aircraft who was based in um, San Diego and ended up deciding that 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 we shouldn't fly that aircraft for the rest of the trip because it was only going to get farther away from its home base. And so Chauncey actually flew that aircraft back to um, San Diego. It was deemed safe enough to do that by the um, mechanic. And luckily, that flight school where we had used the mechanic had a plane that had just come back online that no one was really renting yet. And the owner of the flight school cut us a deal so that we were able to finish the trip. So we did the second half of the trip in a different aircraft. Wow. Yeah. But you still managed to, he managed to get it back and get a new one and get back to Colorado. And you still managed to finish everything in 12 days? Yeah, so the... Um... So how bad were the people that did this? I mean, not, to belittle your, not to belittle your efforts, and I know you put a lot into this, but come on. So it's even crazier than that, actually, because the reason why Chauncey had time to fly it back to California and then come back to Colorado is because the new aircraft was about three hours away from needing its 100-hour inspection, which is an inspection that's required for aircraft that's used um, to carry passengers or to teach out of. And that inspection takes like two to three days of full-time work to complete. 
And this, I think this was like on a Wednesday or Thursday that Chauncey flew the plane back. Friday, the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the weather was horrible anyway, so we weren't going to be able to get out of Colorado then. And um, then they started the 100-hour on Monday, and I think finished it Wednesday morning. And so we were finally able to leave Wednesday afternoon. So we were actually in Colorado for a full week um, because of this delay. So if it, if it hadn't been for that, we we would have broken the record by a lot more, but we also would have done the second half in a slightly more leisurely fashion. Like, the first half, we actually slept in hotels and ate real food. The second half, we slept on couches in FBOs for a few hours at a time and ate I don't even know what, honestly. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I just want to say, I want to say sleeping in FBOs uh, and in eating, you know, you know, hot ramen, you know, out of yeah. a cup, like <laughs> cup noodles or something. Sounds like it's like Seth's perfect way of traveling. <laughs> like that, like that, the FBO is like a hostel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I'm trying to decide whether I should be proud or offended at this comment, and I'm really not sure which. I, actually, the, the one question I have though is, if you're flying under VFR, that means daylight flights only, right? You can fly VFR at night. Oh, you can. And we did. We did fly a lot at night. the The whole trip from from leaving San Diego until we returned with the new plane to Colorado, we did around, I think, 140 hours. And of that, I believe about 30 hours were at night. So we flew quite a bit at night. And that includes, you know, flying back from Maine. Um, we stopped in Michigan for a few days to hang out with my parents who live here. Um, and then we flew back to Colorado. But I like flying at night because the air is a lot smoother. Mm. And so it's just it's just very chill. There aren't so many other airplanes out. And so I always thought the flying at night was great. And plus, I'm not a morning person. So staying up late was way easier than getting up early, though we did have to get up early a lot also. I, I, I love that. It's like, well, I don't like to get up early. So let's just fly at night because we can. And the weather's good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm, I'm thinking I, there's a... I think we're going to talk about it a little later, but a new seaplane thing starting, and they they can't. They said they don't fly at night because of VFR rules. I don't know if that's seaplanes or. I I think it. I don't know if it's the VFR rules, but I think it might have something to do with the the landing on the water because they. I I don't know if they can have lights. I mean, I guess there's probably some way that they could have a lighted runway on the water, but I don't. I don't really know how that works because I don't know how seaplanes work. But I. That's my guess. Is it? Has yeah. No. That that makes sense. They can't. It has to be a lighted runway, and this. Yeah. You can't light up the ocean unless like. I mean, you could, but that would be a terrible thing to do. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, there was why. there was that oil rig thing. Yeah, <laughs> they could hire them. <laughs> the, the, the one where the Gulf of Mexico was on fire. That yes, probably yeah. that probably wasn't for flight flight. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was trying to think of some other questions I had. I mean, there's tons of questions I could talk about this all day because I think it's fascinating. Like uh, with VFR rules, right? Where you you guys were having to kind of dodge weather as well. I'm guessing as you were. As, as you were going between airports, did you run into a lot of weather? I mean, you're early enough in the season where there probably weren't a lot of thunderstorms, but did you have some incidents of that? We actually, we got pretty lucky. I mean, when, when we were stuck in Colorado for those couple of days, there, there was some bad weather, but we didn't have a plane then anyway, so it didn't matter. Um, I think there, you know, there, I think really the whole second half of the trip was pretty smooth from the weather front. When we left Maine, we did have to wait until late afternoon. We were hoping to be able to leave like late morning, and there was weather, so we couldn't leave from Maine as soon as we wanted. And then that meant that we we didn't get. We were hoping to fly all the way to Michigan in one day, but we ended up spending the night um, at Niagara in Niagara Falls, New York, and then flying, finishing the flight back in the morning. 
And then we did actually on our on our last leg into Colorado um, pick up an IFR flight plan in the air because we were really close to our destination and there were just a few clouds and we didn't have enough fuel to be able to go around the clouds and we just like were ready to get there at that point. You're ready to be done. Yeah. 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 I'm looking at the flight, like the flight path on fly49states.com that you, that you put up. And it's, it's fun. It's funny because you're like, people are like, Oh, when you fly to 49 states, right? You're going to like fly to the middle, but no, you're, you're serious. You really just like skirted the edges, right? Like, yeah. Well, you know, Idaho real quick from Montana, then down to Washington, Oregon, Northern California into Nevada. And then yeah. like touched Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and then up and through Colorado. So it's like the edge of the state and it's, it makes this an interesting, it's fascinating. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of crazy too. Like if you look at where we landed in Texas, it's way on the east part. And in, in my head, Texas doesn't even go that far east, but obviously it does. And that's actually, that made a huge difference between our record attempt and the, the guys who held the record previously is their route wasn't optimized. They pretty much went across the north and then they came back across the south. So they, they started and ended their fly 40, 48 states trip in the same location. Whereas we started ours in Montana and we ended in Maine. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. The sectional is actually really, I mean, I think the sectional is a great view of, of it. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. So th- what was the, what was the type of plane on the second half of the trip? The one that you picked up in Colorado? It was also a Cessna 172, but it was an XP model. And it, it was actually really nice because um, it had an autopilot and it had <laughs> a constant speed propeller. Um, oh, so, so you, didn't have, to, you didn't have to mess with the propeller variability or anything like that. Right. And yeah, it gave me just some more insight into the different systems that exist on different planes. And um, they say that getting your private pilot certificate is, is a lesson to learn, is a, an invitation to learn more about um, aviation. And so it was, it was just kind of cool to have an introduction to how different, different planes can be. Yeah. Even when they're both 172s. I kind of love that you use Long Island for your New York stop. <laughs> like, yeah, there's this whole big other state out there, but whatever. We don't need that. <laughs> well, she's going to Maine. Got to optimize. So you did like Long Island, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Mm-hmm, exactly. Sort of looked to there. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. She was actually that- right. She was like by Marble or is where she landed in New Hampshire. Out by Marlboro. I don't know if, how close that is to you, Seth. No, it's the wrong side of New Hampshire for me. But well, it's not a huge state. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> if you Keene is like a two and a half hour drive from me, which is hard to believe. There's no highways east west. Uh, yeah, here. gotcha. That's the problem. Um, you, I was. You were much closer when you got to Maine. You should have called. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next time. Well, yeah, that had been our plan originally when we thought we were going to have more time. Is I have you know friends all over, and we did actually. Yeah. One of my friends lives in Chicago and is a pilot, and flew up to. Wisconsin and met us for lunch that day. Oh, nice. But by that point of the trip, we were like, oh, we really have to like go. And actually, it's kind of crazy because they're the helicopter record for the fastest to visit the 48 states is a little bit over 12 days. Um, one guy did it in 12 days by himself. I don't know how, because the, the last bit of the trip, we were kind of like, we literally have to optimize <laughs> every landing to be as fast as possible if we want to beat this helicopter record also. <laughs> and so literally 
I, after every landing, I'd be like, okay, so we have X number of states left. If we can keep our average time on the ground to under, you know, Y number of minutes, <laughs> then we're just <laughs> barely going to break the record. And I, I don't know exactly how many like hours and minutes this guy had, you know, it was closer to 12 days than to 13 days, but we did our final time for the 48 states was like 11 days, 23 hours and like 53 minutes. So we were just barely under the 12 day <laughs> kind of goal that was in our head when we finally rolled start in. Calling, start calling ahead to FBOs and see who's got a NASCAR fuel can to fill the tanks faster. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, this reminds me of Midnight Run. I don't know how familiar either of you are with the movie, but it, it I reminds me of that. It. It's Robert De Niro. It's okay. Or Cannon. I said Cannonball Run would be the version I'd go with, but that's yeah. much less serious. Yes, much less serious. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, I mean, this is I mean, it's an adventure. Yeah. Oh, it, and so, it, it definitely was. And so through all of this, though, you also accrued a whole bunch of hours and enough to get close to your uh, PPL? Is that- yeah. So way I have way more hours than necessary. The minimum requirement is 40 hours, and at least 20 of those have to be um, instruction, and at least 10 have to be solo. I had none of my solo hours because none of the the aircraft were allowed to be, neither of the aircraft were allowed to be soloed away from their home base. Just in case something happened, it would be harder to fix it and more expensive to fix it. Um, also, and, wouldn't typically a solo go back to where it started because you'd have to pick up Chauncey? Well, right, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe I that. wouldn't have wanted to pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> See ya, buddy. I'm finishing this on my own. Uh. Um, so, and yeah, the, the national average for people completing their private pilot is 62 hours. Um, so I, I had 135 hours before I even soloed. Um, oh, wow. well, actually I had 135 logged hours, but I actually couldn't log all of the hours of the trip because Chauncey's only allowed to give eight hours of instruction per day. And there were days that we flew for over eight hours Our the, the highest number of hours we flew on any one calendar day was 14 hours. So I had uh, six hours that I couldn't even log that day. Did so you you have solo now? I have solo now. We were we were talking about this when you were in Portland. You hadn't soloed yet. I hadn't soloed yet and I was terrified. <laughs> and how did it go? It went a lot better than I kind of <laughs> expected it to, but I don't know how people solo for the first time after like 10 to 15 hours of instruction. Just just cuz it's typical. like oh, it's, it's it's a lot going on, right? Like and like I didn't, I still don't know anything, but I definitely didn't know anything then. <laughs> I mean, you you went and you came back, so it seems like you know a couple things. Yeah, Let's give you a little credit here. Yeah. yeah, I did have a moment after my wheels were off the ground where I was like, "Okay, I've re- I've really done it now." <laughs> <laughs> and does does that require you to solo cross country? Is it just a solo, uh, just kind of fly around for that many hours, and you can come back to the same airport, or do you have to cross country as part of that solo? So 10 solo hours are required and five of those must be cross country. And what's considered cross country um, in aviation terms is any flight that's more than 50 nautical miles from the um, departure point. So I did my solo cross country last Sunday. It's typical for people to break it up into two separate flights, like a shorter solo cross country and a longer solo cross country. But Mm -hmm. I just, I wanted to go have lunch with a friend and, I did my solo cross country in a Cessna 150, which is a slower plane than a 172. 
And so I knew based on my flight plan that I was going to be really close to five hours. So I just flew around a little bit extra at the end to keep over <laughs> five hours. Um, and I did it all in one go since I'm I, like, I feel much better about my cross country flight planning and abilities than I do even still with, with landings. Like, I think that's still the, the harder part for me. Um, though my landings have also gotten a lot better and I'm not afraid to fly by myself anymore. Awesome. That's awesome. Is this, is this mean you're going to go buy a Cirrus now? SR22? And that's, that's going to be, cause you need something a little higher speed. Yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> 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 I actually do think if I, if I decided that if, if after I go back and, um, you know, travel internationally again, if I decide that, cause I'm a little bit intimidated to go back to my previous life of full-time travel just because the world is very different and I, I haven't traveled internationally in a long time and I haven't been to a non-Spanish speaking country in even longer. And so I'm like, how did I used to do that all the time? And so my backup plan, if I don't like that anymore, which I'm sure is not going to actually be the case, but, you know, just in case to have a backup plan is to buy a plane, but probably not a Cirrus, probably something cheaper and just fly around the country for a while. Hey, I, I like it. I like that plan. I, I, I kind of feel like both could work. Yeah. Both yeah, would okay. work except for planes are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like a boat. You want you you want yeah, the friend else to have boat. one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like can I borrow your your plane? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> um so are you uh you cool with jumping into some some news topics or Seth, yeah. did you have other questions or No, I I'm I remain amazed um that you sort of did this I'll say rookie sort of in training. It's, it seems like an, both an incredibly wonderful way to do it, but also way I would imagine more stressful just because the extra planning involved. So very impressed. Right. It's I not just doing to, loops at the local airport. Yeah. I tend to enjoy drinking from the fire hose. So <laughs> I would say that's an understatement in this case. Yeah, it's, it's pretty in character. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we were talking about seaplanes earlier. Uh, there is an airline that I think it's called Tailwind uh, that wants to to start New York City to Boston seaplane flights. Yeah, it's I'm I'm really torn on it. I think it's super interesting. Obviously, I think everything we talk about is, but uh, they are going to fly from 23rd Street Manhattan on the East River to Boston Harbor, <laughs> and they do it on an. Uh, a caravan with eight seats on board. So it's executive style seating light, uh, you know, very light loaded. Uh, your ticket comes with a 20 pound baggage allowance. So I'm like thinking about, okay, I could take this to get to Boston on the way to, or to, to New York on the way to London in a couple weeks. Um, am I going to be able to pack my suitcase down to 20 pounds for that trip? That <laughs> would be weird. Um, you know, I guess only one pair of shoes, certainly at that point. Um, but then, <laughs> It's right, like it's they literally are landing in the middle of Boston Harbor and they take their dock is like there's I guess the plane stays out in the harbor and they bring a boat out and ferry you to the pier in downtown Boston. <laughs> so that part of it seems pretty cool. That's fun. Um, I, yeah, it's th their goal is to do make it so that you can truly do out and back for a man, a meeting in either city, you know, downtown in a day without dipping into. Yeah. The, I mean, I think, I think it's cool. You have to work of, without having to worry uh, about transit know, time to the airport and security lines and, you know, needing to be at the airport X hours early because of all that stuff. Yeah. And, and when we say Boston Harbor, I mean, forgive my 
lack of 1776 knowledge here, but is that like just southwest of the airport? Because, I mean, there's a lot of water around Boston. Yeah, you land. So they they put an X on the map, and it's basically just off the edge of the uh, of Logan, and okay. you uh, uh, and then they ferry you south though from there. So you don't go up to Logan; you go down to land on the other side. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and what's interesting about that, in some ways, to me, is like how do you integrate seaplanes into the rest of the operations at Logan? And I know from a seaplane operator friend in Fort Lauderdale that basically when it's that close to the real airport, they'll basically shoot the approach as though they are going to a regular runway and then just dip off to the side and land in the water instead, which is like from an operational perspective, super crazy. (laughs) So they would like shoot the approach for what is that? Like three, two at the South side of of Logan and then just land in the water. I I imagine they do like nine twenty seven, right? The the straight East West runway. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, get in line basically with, because most of the big planes do, most often they use 422, right? The sort of northeast-southwest approach, and that's where the big planes go. But I think uh, Cape Air does plenty of the short runway stuff. Um, and these guys could, you know, with the cross run, and these guys could do that too and just drop right in. <laughs> so. what, do you, what do you think, Caroline? Would you do this? I mean, I would definitely do it. I think I think it would be pilot an for awesome them? way. I mean, may, yeah, maybe someday. I have a ways to go. <laughs> I'll just start working on my seaplane rating next. I'll just fly <laughs> around, you know, the circumference of the United States. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I I think it sounds cool, but I don't know if it's really that helpful for business travelers. And then again, I'm I'm not based on the East Coast. I've never been a business traveler, so who knows what they actually want. But I just think that those flights will not be as reliable as commercial flights because of the weather. They won't mm. be as reliable as Amtrak yeah. because of the that, weather. That, that's and my concern too. But They're yeah. still on a limited schedule. I think they're doing, what, four flights per day? Eventually, and they can yeah. only be during daylight hours and only during certain times of the year. And so, I mean, I guess they think there's a big enough market to have launched the flights. Um, but I, I would just like to do it because I like doing taking weird routes and trying new airlines and doing different things. And so definitely next time I'm in the area at the right time of the year, that's going to be something I want to do just for fun. If so, I have under 20 pounds of luggage, which is never. <laughs> so here's the real question, right? How do you log this into flight memory or something? It has IATA codes. It do- both stops? Yeah. I didn't realize East 23rd Street had an IATA code. Yeah, you're looking it up right now, aren't you? This is what we need a producer for. <laughs> I am. I'm trying to Speaking get to it. memory, it's in I, the notes. So I am logging my whole. I'm logging my whole Fly 49 States trip in um, in flight memory as well. But a lot of the airports aren't in the database, and so I have to manually add them using the latitude and longitude, and it's taking a really long time. Oh yeah, because I bet they're like most of them are like nine S codes or uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe in in like another couple of years, I'll finally be done with that part of the project. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a pain. Yeah. <laughs> I because I used to fly. I mean, I used to work right off East 16th Street in New York, and and I could actually see the East 23rd. Like there are other seaplanes out of East 23rd, and I would watch them take off and land. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So You're East 23rd Street is NYS. Yeah, NYS for New York something. I don't know. New York Skyport. There you go. And Boston Harbor is BNH. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. So who knows if any of the systems actually have, you know, if those flight memories or whatever have those, have those entered because, you know, whatever, but going to try. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, let's talk about Malaysian Airlines. They are uh, somehow finally getting around to trying to sell their A380s. I didn't say they, they did sell them. They're trying to sell them. Um, yeah, there's a tender offer out, right? So it's like, hey, does anybody want these? Um, because they finally <laughs> have decided, like, right, they used them. Well, for, for London service for a while, so whatever. And then that was not working. And then they tried to use them as sort of charter operations for uh, pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia. And these days, that's mostly done. Although there is actually, there's a little bit of that coming back. Saudi is starting to sell tickets. I saw an advertisement uh, just before we started recording that you can apply for your like permit for the Umrah pilgrimage now again, when you buy your plane ticket. So that some of that's coming back, but uh, obviously not quite in the same volumes as it used to be. And so, and I mean, everybody, the, the problem for Malaysia Airlines is, the, the problems are plentiful, but at this point, the main situation, like everybody's getting rid of their 380s. So it's not mm. like it's a suddenly, you know, they have something unique or special here to offer. So I think I give uh, an, a, a sort of nod to our last episode where we said we were going to buy out the Alitalia brand. Uh, Jason and Ian over at Flight Radar said they were going to do the same thing and apparently went a step further than us and actually used a Malaysia Airlines A380 as their flagship aircraft. So uh, if they get it, I guess that's where we're going. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I mean, so let's talk about which airlines are getting rid of them. So, B B A B A is are they done with their A three eighties? Are they going to bring them? No, they're keeping. They're keeping for now. Okay, Lufthansa. I thought was done, but I could be wrong. They're done. Yeah. Um, Uh, Qantas. Airways is done. Qantas is keeping. Okay. China Southern Um, is keeping. Korean, I'm not sure. Emirates is keeping. Etihad is dumping. Who else? Uh, ANA. Keeping for now, I think. Uh, they only had the three. Air France, I don't remember. Thai. Oh yeah, Thai. Ah, yeah. It's a mirror. I, they're still in business. That's kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's. I'd have to get do more research. That we there's just a, there's a lot of A380s out there that potentially just from Etihad and Qatar getting rid of theirs. Right, that's quite a few. I mean, here's the thing. The demand for the type was zero anyways, <laughs> even pre-COVID. So, like, and now with long haul, you know, hub-to-hub international traffic going to be several years towards recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, even HiFly got rid of the one that they, that with the former Singapore one that they had leased and were operating randomly. With with all of the Newark issues, maybe United should buy some of these or lease them and fly them point to point. Baton Rouge? Yeah, Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge, <laughs> uh, or Florida. And some of their Florida routes, I could see that working. <laughs> Just stuff those things full of tourists going to Orlando and uh, beat a legion out on prey. Well, and then think about how many people would get kicked off of those flights for not wearing their masks <laughs> properly. I love that that's immediately where your mind went. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you, you could do that. Think about that. I mean, you can't operate the A380 yet. Newark, but it's fun to think about. They is, got Newark not, is Newark not capable? I don't think so. Taxiway problems next to mm. the runway. Um, I think, I mean, they, United has JFK slots. JFK LAX isn't doing great. So an A380 on it, though, baby, and watch the passengers show up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get, you'd get you end up on yeah, the blogosphere. It'd be great. You, I, you're going to kill me. Avatar. Screw the 747s. Go for the <laughs> 380s instead. <laughs> Theoretical airlines getting theoretical planes. I love it. <laughs> Avatar, Baltia, Merge. Grab these used 380s, and who knows what comes next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm not even drunk, and I came up with that. I'm yeah, I mean, that is, that is kind of off the wall a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it's – I mean, let's let's be serious here, right? Like, 
Hawaii is another spot where the A380s could actually help the airlines. It, right it wouldn't now. help. It wouldn't help Hawaii, but uh, it would help the airlines. Well, so, that, but that's where Japan. That's where ANA flies them. I mean, I know. But I'm saying domestically, they could do it now, right? Yeah. Like the, There's like, such demand. Yeah. Like you should see. It's just like a constant line of airplanes going to Hawaii from the mainland. Yeah. Constant. Uh, just okay. cut that in half. Put an A380 on. Or you got enough A380s, just keep keep dumping people in. There, <laughs> there already were no rental cars. There's soon there going to be no U-Hauls either. Uh, <laughs> it's bus service to Hawaii. I love it. Yeah. Um, cruise ships. Let's talk about these. So there was a lawsuit, right, in Florida? So CDC passed, had a rule that said if cruises won't operate, they have to be – they have to confirm that passengers are all fully vaccinated. And the state of Florida sued, and the 11th Circuit Court upheld the CDC ruling, and then like three days later with no notice or unclear like reasoning, just issued a new ruling that was 100% the opposite. So that alone, like the circumstances around that alone are bizarre and raise lots of eyebrows. But the current situation is that uh, cruises can operate without requiring vac- proof of vaccination. However, uh, and Disney is, I think, going to be first to get back into service. They are, but because they can't, they're not doing proof of vaccination, the CDC is treating them like other modes of conveyance, which means that at least through September 13th, if you're indoors, masking is required. Hmm. So and does that just apply to the cruises leaving from Florida or does that apply to all cruises in the US? I think it's probably all because the ruling was it's a federal rule and it's a federal court. Okay. Um but I guess like the the cruise ships I think can still re- can ask and um right now it's if the Disney policy is essentially they they're asking everybody if you provide proof of vaccination then you don't have to take a test if you don't you have to test at home some number of days like you know 72 hours out and at the port of embarkation and get should show two negative tests to get on board so they're they're trying in some ways but the, I, what's a little surprising to me is and I, I guess I shouldn't be that surprised for a variety of reasons but that the com- the companies are willing to say we'd rather take people who are testing negative and force masking indoors throughout the cruise ship than uh then say no even though we don't have to we still want we're still going to ask everybody to be vaccinated on board mm-hmm. that's the part that's surprising to me it's cuz because it requires the masking that everybody hates but I guess they've looked at who the people are buying the cruises and decided that those those people are less likely to be vaccinated and more likely to be wa- willing to wear the masks or pretend to. Hmm. I mean, the, the I mean, the, the sturdy part to me is the flip on the decision, right? Like, it why, is very why weird. The, yeah, why the change? Um, I I think it's a good thing that they're just saying, okay, well then, just everyone has to mask because of this conveyance rule. Like, if that's if that's the rule, then that's fine. I, I think that's probably at this point what we're seeing in Florida and Alabama and Arkansas. Um, I think it's okay to say you have to wear a mask now because <laughs> clearly it ain't working uh, for vaccination like vaccination wise. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It, I mean, we did, also like that the mask rule currently only applies through September thirteenth. Yeah, we're only two months away or a month and a half away, really. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, I think that's I think that's it for a show. I mean, I think that was that was a solid hour of awesome content. I mean, I'm I'm kind of biased, but that's me. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll give it to you. Yeah, Caroline. <laughs> anything else you wanna you wanna talk about, or is is are you good? Oh no, I'm good. This was super fun though. Sweet. Well, um, a big thank you to Caroline for coming on the show. Uh, Fly49states.com is where they can find you. Twitter or Instagram is what do you prefer? How do how do people find you online, Caroline? So, um, Fly 49 States has an Instagram with some photos from our trip. It's at Fly 49 States. 
Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Caroline Lupini. That's L-U-P-I-N-I for the last name. Awesome. Um, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Dots Lines, more dots, more lines.com. Uh, thanks for listening. We're going to have a little bit of a bonus topic uh, talking about some Eurowing stuff for our Patreon subscribers. And uh, that comes up right after this. So thanks for listening and uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>